0: It's great to be here with you. It's great to be back here with you. The last three Sundays, I've been preaching in other commissioned churches, but being uh, very much looking forward to being here with everyone uh, today after three weeks. We've got a lovely long stretch of just being here. Oh, that's nice. That was unexpected. That's very nice. It's nice to feel wanted. Um, and today, we're concluding the series that we've been doing together over the last few months from the book of Exodus. So if you do have a Bible, can you turn to Exodus chapter 19? And we've been thinking about a God-centered community, a God-centered community, and the passage that I have the privilege of speaking from today is a wonderful combination, really, of so many of the themes that we've been thinking about. Now, when you read the Bible, there are a number of ways in which you can, you can read it, and there's a number of ways in which we can read this passage of Scripture. You can read it as historical text, as historical narrative so the passage that we're looking at, you can say, well, this is a historical narrative. This is telling historical events of things which took place. And I think that's a fair way of reading the Bible. We can read the Bible like that for sure. As we read through the New Testament, we find that uh, the New Testament authors were reading the Old Testament scriptures, not just as historical narrative, but also as theological narrative. Um, in other words, as, as real stories that tell a much bigger story about who God is, and how God's working in the world, and the ways in which God's revealing himself to people. To read the passage theologically is entirely appropriate to do. You can also read it, here's another theological word, Christocentrically. Yeah, Christocentrically, which means to read it to find out about Jesus. How does the passage speak to us about Christ, about Jesus and and it's not just one or two passages in the Old Testament that you can do that with Jesus taught his disciples that in fact it's all about him all of scripture is about who he is and what he has done and what he's doing in the world so we're going to I hope today we're going to read it historically theologically Christocentrically with one great overriding purpose which is the overriding purpose of preaching full stop which is to know Jesus better And to love Jesus more. So that is my hope today. That God will help us to do that. So let's read from verse 1 of Exodus 19. On the third new moon. After the people of Israel. Had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim. And came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just make a humble request, Lord. Our request is please help us to know and love Jesus better. And as we go through this passage, Holy Spirit, would you please help me to do that Help us to focus our eyes on Jesus, the one who changes lives, the one who's better than all others, and the one that uh, we just want to live our lives with. Help me, help us, we pray. Amen. So the title of this message is this, God's Treasured Possession. God's Treasured Possession. This passage does include this theme and this idea, one which genuinely, I believe, if you can grasp hold of it, Grasp hold of its truth makes all the difference in the world to how you live, to how you see yourself, to how you see other people, to how you understand your reason for existing. If you can grasp hold of this reality, it will change how you approach temptations to sin and how you might even spend your time and your money If you can get hold of this idea, it will massively help you in your own mental health and how you handle worry and anxiety and thoughts about the future. If you can get hold of this, it will make such a profound difference to you and to me. This is the greatest idea, really, for any individual to grasp hold of, and it is simple. You are God's treasured. Possession. You are God's treasured. You are his treasure. Wow. Is that true? You are his treasure. So, this is what we're thinking about today. The passage began, and I don't know if you noticed, perhaps you did, because I've been very clever and I've highlighted the words wilderness. There's this repetition of this word. And we're told that they came to the wilderness of Sinai, that they came into the wilderness, that they encamped in the, where? The wilderness. Now, as Sarki brits some of us, we go, sorry, where were you? The wilderness. Okay, we get the point. You're in the wilderness. Why is that repeated? Why is that emphasized? Well, the story that we've been on so far is the story of the, 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 the way in which God led the Israelites out of their slavery in Exodus, and, they, and he's taken through the sea, And now they're in this barren place, this wilderness. And whenever we come across the wilderness, we're thinking of this arid desert, this barren place, this lifeless place. It's synonymous with a place which is dark, a a place that that isn't yielding life. It's not a very happy place to be, to be in the wilderness. And you have to try and picture this scene with me. We're talking not just of a few hundred or even a few thousand We're talking about two million people journeying through the wilderness. Just try and conceive in your mind of that. Try and picture a desert and then try and imagine what two million people and cattle and camels and animals and just try and imagine that steady procession through the wilderness. It's a stark picture. It's an extraordinary thing to think about. Now, we need to understand this as God's people, as his church, that we exist in a spiritual wilderness. We exist, we live in a spiritual wilderness. We are on a journey as God's people through a barren spiritual wilderness. Here we are today and we've been singing songs and I like to sometimes look around and see people worshipping. And many of you were hands raised, smug grins on your faces enjoying God, like enjoying Him, expressing your worship to Him like this. Now imagine for a moment as you're holding that pose, your colleagues suddenly see you doing that. It's weird, isn't it? It's quite an odd thing to be doing. That would be a weird thing for your colleagues or your neighbors to suddenly see you like this. What's going on? Singing songs, looking happy. It's a bit weird. It's a bit odd. It's a strange sight. It's a strange spectacle. Yet here we are, a room full of people, and we're doing that. We're we're worshiping and we're enjoying God. Whilst around us in this world, the vast majority aren't. We live in a spiritual wilderness. We're on a journey together. For the Israelites, being in a wilderness, though, was a temporary phase. It was temporary. Where were they going? The Lord God had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land rich, a wonderful place to live. He was taking them on a journey. He was taking them somewhere better. There's this one moment when Moses is speaking to some Midianites in Numbers 10, verse 29, and we read this. We're setting out for the place the Lord promised. I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. So as the Israelites are journeying through the wilderness, they come across various groups of people who are obviously baffled by this vast movement of of Israelites. And, And Moses says, come with us. The Lord's promised us a great place. He's promised to take us to somewhere which is rich and wonderful. Come with us we'll do you good we as God's people living in a journeying through a spiritual wilderness this is temporary right we are being led somewhere better he's taken us to somewhere rich he's taken us to a wonderful destination and along the way we're saying to people come and join us we'll do you good Come and join us. God has promised us wonderful things. Come and join us. There's a wonderful destination ahead. And it's going to be a great adventure. AJ joined us. Others have joined us. Why do we run Alpha? We run Alpha because we want people to join us. We want to tell people of where it is God's going. We want people to know that despite what might seem like a lot of misery in this world, that it's temporary. That there's going to be a time coming when God makes all things new. When he perfects this world. And right now we get the first fruits of that. So that we lift our hands and we have smug grins on our faces. Because we know we are loved by God and forgiven. And that we have relationship with him. that God is not just some idea but a real person who lives with us. Hallelujah. Come with us will do you good. God's promised us great things. Hasn't he? He's promised us great things. So the wilderness is the setting. And we're going to look at three things that, that are emphasized in this passage. Firstly, the rescue. So verse 4, we, we have God speaking to Moses. He says, I want you to go to the Israelites and I want you to speak these things to them. And he said, says this in verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians you've seen it remember what you've seen you saw me display my power you saw me rescuing you out of your slavery of course it was a very powerful moment signs and wonders the ocean is parted and he's reminding them remember what I did remember what you saw remember how this has happened And throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we find this constant struggle. Remember it. Remember. Don't forget what I've done. Festivals are given. You have the Passover. You have all kinds of ways of remembering what's taken place. Why is it that they're constantly being urged to remember? Is it that God has some kind of insatiable need to be thanked? Of course not. They need, to be remember- they need to remember the faithfulness and the goodness and the wonderful ways in which God has delivered them because they're going to struggle, because in the wilderness it's going to get tough and they're going to be tempted to question and they're going to be tempted to doubt. And as Rob reminded us the other week, some are going to groan and grumble. Remember what I've done. Remember what I did. And And there's this beautiful phrase that's used. I bore you on eagle's wings. I bore you on eagle's wings. This is a metaphor that God chooses. This is a metaphor that God chooses to describe the way in which he's rescued these people. I bore you on eagle's wings. Tolkien, in his wonderful books... The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, tried to capture this in the storytelling, this scene of eagles coming and rescuing. And there's this phrase, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. And uh, so I thought I'd read some of the Lord of the Rings to you. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable about having a book bigger than my Bible, (laughs) with me today. So I'm just having to deal with that awkwardness. It's a big old book. So I want to read, I thought I could describe it, but then he's done a much better job. So if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings story, let me just very quickly bring you up to speed. These, <laughs> like, oh, right. Okay. Let's very quickly bring you up to speed. The hobbits have journeyed with the ring to destroy this ring of power which is full of evil and darkness which is destroying the earth they've got to take it to the ferno to the, to the mount full of the, the, the fire to destroy it they, they threw all kinds of perils they do it and the ring is thrown this is, a very, this is a well-thumbed book it's falling apart and we get to the point where the ring has been cast into the lake of fire And we have the the names of the eagles, so just bear with me, humor me. And so it was that Gwaihir, one of the eagles, saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes, as down the wild wind he came, and daring the great peril of the skies, he circled in the air two small dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand upon a little hill, while the world shook under them and gasped. And the rivers of fire drew near. And even as he espied them and came swooping down, he saw them fall, worn out or choked with fumes and heat, or stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. Side by side they lay, and down swept Guayahir. And down came Landreval and Meneldor, the Swift. And in a dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne far away, out of the darkness and the fire. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed, but over him gently swayed wide beechen boughs, and through their young leaves sunlight glimmered, green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. He remembered that smell—the fragrance of Ethelion. Bless me, he mused. How long have I been asleep? For the scent had borne him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank. And for the moment, all else between was out of waking memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. Why, what a dream I've had, he muttered. It's a good little accent that not it? I am glad to wake. He sat up and then he saw that Frodo was lying beside him and slept peacefully. One hand behind his head, and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand, and the third finger was missing. Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried out, It wasn't a dream. Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him. In the land of Ithilien. (laughs) That was good. And in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. "'Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel?' he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, "'Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself.' Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he'd not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as, a, as sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out of the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel. He waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. I'll leave it there. (laughs) Tolkien loved Jesus. And he wrote a story to draw out some of the things that we come across in the Bible and in the gospel. And this most brilliant scene in the story where Sam and Frodo look like they're about to die. Look like it's over. The eagles come. Lift them up and they awake and it's bright and it's light and it's airy and Gandalf and and there's, and there's joy and there's singing and there's laughter. And these things are the true experiences of those that have known the saving grace of Jesus Christ. When you have known God get hold of you and lift you from your despair and rescue you from your doom. When you thought all was destined for darkness and death and destruction. The eagles came, grabbed hold of you, rescued you and taking you to a beautiful place. He bore us on eagles wings. You see, that is what took place at the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, in the infinite power of a God who works across all time, the eagles swooped down and lifted. At the cross, as Jesus is suffering and dying, truly, truly, the eagles, as it were, are coming and scooping up God's people, lifting us up, Away from the destruction and from the death that awaits us. Gloriously mounted on wings like eagles. It's a picture of stunning grace. The rescue of God. We love to talk about the gospel here. There's no, there's no better news. There's nothing better that anyone can talk about than the rescuing of God's people by God's Son. There's nothing better than that. There's no reason for preaching if it's not to tell people about that. There's no point spending time doing anything else other than celebrating the rescuing of Jesus Christ. And then it says next, And I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. So not only is there a rescuing, leading the Israelites out of Egypt... But then they're brought to him, they're brought to him at the mountain and God is with them and making his presence felt and speaking to them. This is crucial insight for us. You see, becoming a Christian, it doesn't just end the moment that you are saved. It's not like you go, okay, I prayed a prayer now, I've been baptized now, that's it, I can now live wildly and it doesn't matter. That's not the point. It's not like, okay, this is it. You've been saved, but being saved is not the end in and of itself. We celebrate baptisms and we celebrate rescuing and we celebrate the moment where people encounter God for the first time. But it then leads to something even greater, which is we then get brought to God. We get to be with God. We get to know God. We get to do our lives with God. What an incredible privilege that is for us. So Paul said, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, my Lord. He brings us to himself. He brings us into his presence that we might know him, that we might enjoy him. Christ is the great gift. Knowing Christ is the great gift. Having relationship with God is the greatest gift. The greatest gift. The rescue. Next, the reason. So he rescues them and then there's a reason for rescuing them. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The reason that they are rescued is that they would be God's treasured possession this is identity so if the first thing rescuing is about salvation this second thing the reason is for an identity to be established that you would be my treasured possession he's speaking this over the israelites this is being spoken over us who am i i am god's treasured possession because i belong to the people of god god's people are are his treasured possession. And it's really important that we hear this because it's not enough actually just to sit there and go, I am God's treasured possession and have no regard at all for the people who are sat around you. So whilst it's true for the Christian to say, I am God's treasured possession, it's true because I belong to the people of God and the people of God are his treasured possession. So we are collectively treasured together. The people of God here, the Israelites, are his treasured possession. You and I are treasured by God because we are his people. Because we've been joined to one another. Because we have been ransomed. That's to be bought by him to be his treasure, to be his jewel. I wonder if anyone has ever asked you the question, if your house was burning down... What would be the one thing that you'd want to grasp hold of? What's, what's the most valuable thing? What's your most treasured thing in your house? And the gospel tells us that the earth is, a, in a sense, burning by evil. Christ comes in and says, I'm going to take my people as my treasured possession. And I'm going to have them. Listen to these words in Isaiah. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God, a crown, something beautiful. Do you have that self-awareness? When you think of who you are, do you have deep within you, do you say, I am God's treasure? I am God's treasure. That's, how, that's what the Bible says of you. If you've been rescued... You've been rescued to be treasured by God. You've got to hear this. I don't know how to make you hear this. You've got to hear this because you're going to go out into the world and you're going to be fed a whole load of lies which are going to say the complete opposite about you and others. You've got to hear it today and I'm going to say it loudly because it's in a place like this where you hear it truthfully. You are God's treasured possession, that's who you are and you must resist anything that says anything to the contrary but if you knew me, if you knew what I was like if you knew the things that I did if you knew the way I behaved, if you knew the things which I'd said, if you'd seen the stuff that's happened to me I don't feel like I'm treasure, I don't feel like I'm a crown, I don't feel like I'm a diadem. you've got to throw out those thoughts He's chosen you. He has given himself for you to make you his treasured possession. It's powerful. And then there's another thing. It says, and to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's there's his. Firstly, the first thing you need to know is you're his treasured possession. Secondly, you need to know you've also got a. A commission. So you are his treasured possession, but there is a commission. There's a job for you to do. You're to be his priests. You are a holy nation. Peter picks up on this. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, again, it means that it isn't sufficient just to sit here and go, I'm his treasure. That's all I need to know, and off I go. To just come and sit here and go, tell me how wonderful I am. And now, okay, he's, okay, I can leave now, because we've done that bit. He says, you're to be my treasure and my priests. What does that imply? It means you've got a job to do. The priests were there to, to help the Israelites to worship, to lead the sacrifices, to see that the, the word of God, the law of God was respected and honored. You've got a priestly responsibility if you're a Christian. A priestly responsibility to encourage one another, to help one another, to, to, to lead one another to worship God and to know God better. That's not just the responsibility for the people who stand up here and play an instrument. That's all of us. We're all called to be priests. So I know we have elders and we have people who are appointed to help us, particularly, understand God's word and to look after us and to care for us. But if you think that's what it's all about, you're wrong you are a priest and I am a priest and Christ is our great high priest no one of us is more special or better than the other we all have a priestly role what is it that God's uniquely given you to do who are the people uniquely that he's placed you around what a difference this makes to the workplace when you go out there knowing I'm a priest I'm part of a holy nation what a different work ethic you bring into your office you're not cooking the books You're coming to bring a sense of the kingdom of God. You're going as a priest. You're coming into that environment, and you've got a unique opportunity to show and to display something of what Christ is like in that place. You can be a priest to those who have never known a priest. We're a priesthood of believers, all of us, with a contribution to make. Firstly, we need to know we're his treasure. You've got to get that first. You come to be my treasure, not the other way around. But having established ourselves as those who are his treasure, he then says, look, I've got a job for you to do. What is God calling you to do? Who are the people that God's asking you to love? Who are the people that God's asking you to encourage? Thirdly then, and finally, the result. The result. I wonder if some of you thought he's just dodged a really awkward part of the passage. Verse 5 again. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Why do you have to use that word if? If you will obey my voice. If. I wonder if you think, oh no. Now, if (laughs) all of these spiritual blessings, all of these wonderful things. All of these wonderful things. God has said, I'm going to give you so many riches. I'm going to bless you. You You're my treasure if you obey me. What does that do to your confidence levels? How good are you at being obedient? How have you been doing so far this year? How have you got on this past month? This past week? Have you been obeying? It seems like there's this condition which has been introduced here which is challenging for us. If you will obey me. Now here's the thing. You've got to hear this very carefully because this is a crucial piece of insight. The law came after the rescue. The call to obedience came after the exodus. Right? So it's not like Moses goes to the Israelites and, and says to them, God's going to set you free from the Egyptians if you obey him. If you obey him, he'll part the, the sea. He doesn't do that. If he'd done that, they'd still be in Egypt. How good were the Israelites at obeying God? Not very. So having rescued them out of Egypt, having led them out of slavery, having proven his love for them, having proven his power, having overcome all of the obstacles, having parted the ocean, having shown his love for them, he's now saying, obey me, not before. Obedience comes after salvation, not before, but it does come. Why? Why? Why is he calling them to obey? Well, I think he's saying, You saw what I did, right? You saw how I loved you. You saw how I parted the ocean. You saw my power. You saw it. I did that because you're my treasure. Now, will you trust me to lead you forward? Will you trust me? Will you obey me? See, as soon as we hear that word obey, we all, you know, automatically it sounds like a negative word. We're called to obey, we're called to follow, we're called to listen, we're called to do his word, we're called to trust him. And who would you rather trust with all your life than the one that suffered and died in your place? Why would he want you to obey him? Because he loves you. So much. Because he wants what's best for you. And because he wants what's best for me. He wants what's best for his people. And ultimately, ultimately, there's only one person who's ever fully obeyed God. There's only one life. That was the fully obedient life. That was the life of Jesus Christ. He fully obeyed. So Israel is spoken of as God's son, but the disobedient son. Christ came and we've already had reference to his baptism. He comes, he's baptized in the, the waters of baptism. You think of the, the sea that was parted. Jesus has his baptism. The Spirit comes upon him. Then what happens next? Where does he go? He's driven where? Into the, into the wilderness, which is where the Israelites went. Jesus is driven into the wilderness, where he is tempted and tested to sin and to give up on God but does he no he doesn't he's obedient he's faithful he gets through it and he lives the perfectly obedient life and he's obedient even unto death on the cross where he defeats sin and satan once and for all and the reason why the bible speaks about Christians as being those who are in Christ is because in Christ means his life is mine is yours His goodness, his obedience, his righteousness is yours and is mine. So that I can truly say, I have lived an obedient life in Christ. And consequently, every spiritual blessing in Christ is mine. All the treasures of heaven are mine. All the riches of heaven are mine. No buts, no ifs, because Christ has already done it the grace of God is, you get to reap the benefits of his work and his labor and to let him lead you and guide you. So we live a life to please and enjoy this grace. He's rescued us. So therefore, we want to obey him. Hallelujah for the gospel. Why did not the band come? Let's stand. We are God's people. We are his treasured possession. We are the apple of his eye. And when God looks upon you today and looks upon us, he's thrilled. Isn't that wonderful? Father in heaven, we thank you that you rescued us, that you bore us on eagles' wings, that you snatched us before the fires could, and that you've taken us to be with you we thank you so much for this eternal home we have with God we thank you that right now Lord yes we're in a spiritual wilderness but you are providing manna from heaven you're providing bread for us you're providing water for us you're giving us what we need we have you with us and our invitation Lord let let our invitation go out come with us he's taking us somewhere amazing Lord, I pray, let us today have that confidence to know that you've done all that was required and you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let us, Lord Jesus, celebrate the wonderful grace, the kindness, the mercies of God. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We are so undeserving of this grace. Oh, but we love it. We love it. Amen. Oh, Amen. Why don't we sing, let's, let's celebrate. And I want to say to you, if you're, if you're not clear on faith yet, you can be clear today. Like you can be clear. You can know that God loves you today. You can know your sin's forgiven. You can know these things. Ask him to come into your heart. Ask him to forgive you. Enjoy that gift. Come and speak to someone here. We'd love to, we'd love to talk to you more if you've got questions. But we're going to respond by worshipping. Let's sing. Let's enjoy this grace together.